Hi sisters and brothers, uh, lovely to be able to talk to you without the mask on today. Uh, can I ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 13. Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 13. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at that passage together. Uh, and also, you'd be, it'd be helpful to have the uh, sermon outline uh, that's in the order of service uh, with you as well. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that you speak to us through your word. And we pray now that as we uh, listen to your word, uh, we would hear your word about your word. Uh, and that we would respond rightly to you, uh, and especially uh, in honor of the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, Christians believe that the Bible is the word of God. Now, we believe God speaks to us in it and through it. But how does the Bible, as the word of God, relate to other authorities that influence us? Now, there are people who, misquoting a theologian named Richard Hooker, speak about a three-legged stool, the Bible, tradition, and reason, and seem to place them at the same level, which Richard Hooker actually never did. Others seem to treat religious experience as authoritatively as they do the Scriptures. But are all these things on the same level as the Bible? Should we pay as much attention to them as we do to the Scriptures? And what happens if they and the Scriptures disagree? Who wins? Should we allow any of these things to void the Word of God, that is to take away its legal force, to make its commands ineffective. Well, if Jesus is our Lord, we must follow Jesus in his attitude to all these things. And his attitude comes out very clearly in our passage today. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is in the region of Galilee, way up in the north of Israel. But a delegation of people come all the way up from Jerusalem to see him. They are, uh, in chapter 7 verse 1, Pharisees and scribes. Uh, the Pharisees were a religious group within Judaism. They tried to strictly follow the law of Moses, but not only the law of Moses, but lots of other laws from, from their tradition. Uh, they were highly respected men, highly regarded as righteous men, scrupulous in their observance of the law and the traditions. And the scribes, well, there was a, they were a group whose purpose it was, to, was to, to preserve, to transmit, to teach and apply the law. Many of them were also Pharisees, though not all of them. And they also added to God's word the, the oral law that came from tradition. They made the oral law as important as the Old Testament law. They were experts in the Old Testament law and its traditional derivatives. And so this group of religious leaders, these pious men, these experts in the Old Testament law, come from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And when they come, they see something that disturbs them in verse 2. Some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, there's nothing wrong with washing your hands before you eat, right? There's good practical reasons to do that. In fact, in these COVID times, it's good to even wash or sanitize your hands to prevent infection regardless of whether you eat or not. But that's not why the Pharisees washed their hands. Verse 3 says, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders. Now, when you or I, when you or I say tradition, we sometimes mean the familiar things our families or communities do as a matter of habit. Right? Maybe you always have your mother's delicious chicken curry on Christmas Day. That's your family tradition. But that, that's not what Mark's referring to here. Or sometimes we mean something in our church culture, like our style of music or the kinds of things that we do in different parts of the year. Or like the traditional service as opposed to the contemporary service. But that's not what Mark is talking about here either. 
The tradition of the elders was a body of teaching, these laws that actually they claimed had been given to God by Moses, but actually developed over time. A couple of hundred years after this, it would be codified and put into law. It's not actually the Old Testament. It's a whole lot of other laws that developed around it. And it's not just about washing hands. Now, verse 4 continues, uh, they come, And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, in the Old Testament, ceremonial washing was commanded by God only in certain circumstances. A priest approaching God in the tent of meeting, a man with discharge was unclean unless he washes his hands. Right? But no suggestion that God's people need to wash their hands before every meal. No, there's nothing to say you can't. So if you want to wash your hands because they're dirty and you've got to eat banana leaf, well, that would have been fine. Uh, if you didn't want to do that, well, law has nothing to say about that either. So all if you have is the Old Testament scriptures, then you don't need to do that. The only reason why you'd have to is because it's commanded by this tradition of the elders. But Jesus doesn't seem to be making his disciples follow it. And so in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes ask Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? What's the assumption here? The assumption is that the tradition of the elders is authoritative. Now the washing of hands is necessary because the tradition of the elders says so. But Jesus refused to accept their assumptions in the question. He turns it back on them, and he criticizes them quite ferociously. Let's have a look at Jesus' response uh, in verse 6 and 7. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Uh, back in the book of Isaiah that he's quoting, the prophet was also talking about people from Jerusalem. God had sealed their eyes and covered their ears so they wouldn't change their minds because God had already decided to bring judgment on them for their sin and hypocrisy. For they pretended to honor God, but actually their hearts were far from him. They worshiped in vain because the things they taught was not God's word, but the commands of men. And God would bring them to judgment. But there would be wonderful salvation for his own redeemed people. Now, Jesus applies these words to the party from Jerusalem in his day. They did not love God. If they did, they would, they would have obeyed his word. Instead, Jesus continues in verse 8, You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law believed the Old Testament. But the problem is something else had got in the way. This other thing, which in their case was a tradition of the elders, was given the same kind of authority as the Scriptures. And whenever something is given the same authority as the Scriptures, it nullifies the Scriptures. Jesus gives them an example from verse 9. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. Right? The Bible tells us to honor our parents. By honoring them includes looking after them, providing for them in their old age. And so we need to make sure their needs are met. That is the right thing to do by God. Uh, but the Pharisees they had a legal loophole to get out of it. Uh, we're not completely sure of the details, uh, but it seems that you could uh, say that your property is devoted to God. Uh, and if your gift is devoted to God, then you don't need to use it to look after your parents. Uh, it doesn't actually mean you have to give it to the temple or anything like that. That's just a declaration, an oath, a, a legal fiction. You make an oath that this is God, uh, God's, but you don't have any time frame to hand it over. You can still use it for yourself. But that means you get out of having to use it for your parents. So Jesus makes this damning indictment in verse 13. He says, You make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. The tradition of the elders that was handed down has won over and against the word of God. Now there are a number of lessons that we need to take to heart here from what Jesus is saying. The first thing to note is that Jesus clearly distinguishes between the word of God and the tradition of men. Right? There's a very clear contrast between the two. There's no confusion. The scriptures are God's word, and the word of God comes with God's authority. That is what must be obeyed. To disobey God is to disobey him, and that is sin. The traditions of men, they are simply the traditions of men. They may be good traditions, they may be poor traditions, but they are not God's word. They don't come with the same authority. Jesus clearly distinguishes between the word of God on the one hand, and that which comes from human beings on the other. And if Jesus is Lord, so must we. The second thing we have to do is to make sure that this Word of God is our highest authority. It doesn't mean it's our only authority, but it must be our highest one. Now you see, my friends, whenever the Word of God and something else are given equal authority, that something else is able to nullify the Word of God. And that same mistake is made time and time again in church history. The official teaching of the Roman Catholicism gives the tradition of the church the same authority as Holy Scripture. In the unofficial practice of many Protestant churches, a looser sense of tradition comes into play. Things which may be a hundred years old or maybe five years old, but were taught and practiced by the founding pastor, are also treated as if they're on the same level as Scripture. And they too can void the Scriptures. And remember, you don't just get this problem with church tradition. For, for some people, their, their own spiritual experiences are more important than Scripture, or put on the same level. So if they pray about something and they feel it's right, and the doors seem to open, then it's okay to do, even if it's something Scripture forbids, and they have to reinterpret Scripture in light of their experience. But it's their own fallible human experience that is voiding the Word of God. Whatever you do, if you put something else on par with Scripture, then you have to interpret Scripture, not just by other Scripture, but by this other thing as well, because it's got the same authority. And that will take you to places where you could never go if you go according to God's Word.
like this whole korban thing, which means people weren't honoring their parents. When you put anything on the same level of Scripture, that will makan the Scripture. No, 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 no. The Bible alone, the Word of God, must be our supreme authority. Now, don't get me wrong. That's not to say there's no place for tradition. Uh, we're not the first generation of Christians. It would be silly to think we need to reinvent the wheel in every generation. There is so much we can learn and appreciate from those who have gone before. There is much wisdom in standing on the shoulders of our forebears. And we Anglicans in particular have been blessed with a great heritage for which we must be very grateful. But we must never ever think that we've made it. Our reformers said the Reformed Church must always be reforming, and that is right. No matter what church we're in, no matter which congregation we are in, we are not there yet. It would be terribly arrogant to think we are. There is no perfect church. We need to keep on testing everything we do, new or old, contemporary or traditional, against the Scriptures. For in the end, our ultimate loyalty is to God and His Word. Likewise, there is also a place for spiritual experience. Don't hear me say otherwise. The experience of realizing something of the, the depth of our own sinfulness and fleeing to Christ in repentance and faith, depending solely on His blood for our forgiveness, finding relief in Him, well, that is a spiritual experience that, that mirrors the gospel. The Bible tells us that's a good thing. But it's the Word of God that interprets the experience, not the other way around. And so we look to Scripture to see if any spiritual experience is a godly experience or an ungodly one, something that's significant or something that is of no importance, uh, something that points to the truth or something that's easily misleading. For example, when things are really hard on all different fronts, when my circumstances are difficult, I feel empty and rejected, I may conclude from my experience that God doesn't love me. But the Word of God tells me that He loves me so much that He gave His Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin on my behalf. And that in spite of what I see and in spite of how I feel, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate me from His love. Who will I believe in my hour of pain? Scripture or experience? Friends, we must always have the Bible as our final authority. The Word of God must be able to critique our teaching, our thinking, our practice, our experience. It is not for us to void the Word of God. That is what Jesus teaches, and Jesus is our Lord. Thirdly, we must not consider things that are outside the Word of God as a requirement for salvation or godly living mustn't consider things that are outside the Word of God as a requirement for salvation or godly living. They may be a good idea, but they're not required of God for salvation or to live a godly life. Well, that was the initial issue with the Pharisees and scribes, wasn't it? They came to Jesus demanding to know why his disciples failed to do something when it was only required by tradition, not by the Bible. And Jesus scolded them for it. You see, it is God's Word that tells us both how to be saved and how to live. If you can't prove something from the Bible, you don't have to do it to please God. And you can't say that someone else is not saved unless they do it. For example, different churches may organize themselves in different ways. 
Now, of course, we must try to do everything in a way that is consistent with the Word of God and the principles that are therein. Uh, and we must act within those structures in ways that are obedient to the Word of God. But there may be different ways of doing things that are still consistent with the Scriptures. If we have agreed on how we do things and the reasons for doing it, then we need to respect that and stick to it. But our structures are not absolute. And those in different churches might do things differently and be equally godly. The 39 Articles of the Anglican Church are a great statement of the biblical faith and do a really good job of explaining the truth of the teachings of the Bible. Listen to what Article 6 says. It says, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary. To salvation. Finally, let us beware of the danger of hypocrisy. Remember the Pharisees and scribes. Their lips were full of God's praises, but their hearts, God said, far from him. And Jesus called them hypocrites. Because not only were they disobeying God's word, but they were trying to justify their disobedience by religious means and then criticizing people like Jesus and his disciples who didn't follow their way of doing things. Friends, it is possible to come to church, to sing God's praises, to pray, to look pious and keen, and to have a heart that is far from God. It is possible to have a form of religion, but to fail to love God from the heart. And that is exactly what those men were like. They were the most religious, strictest people of their day. But religion and law and tradition was there as a substitute for a heart of love and obedience to God. They did not love and obey God. They loved and obeyed the rules. They multiplied the rules and they multiplied the loopholes in the rules. And if our heart doesn't really love God, we'll exploit those loopholes like they did and void the word of God. You see, the attitude of the Pharisees betrayed their hearts. Their hearts, being far from God, used religious tradition and legal precedence to excuse themselves from obeying God's word. Let's not be like that with God. True Christianity is a religion of the heart. A heart that is responsive by God's Spirit to the Gospel. A heart that is changed by the Spirit of God, uh, that, that, that enables it to believe that Jesus is Lord, that He died for our sins, that He rose again. A heart that is ever grateful for Christ and His death for us. A heart that owns Him as the risen Lord and really wants to serve and please Him. A heart that is forgiven and therefore extends forgiveness to others. A heart that knows God's love and so loves God and loves others in return. A heart that loves God so much that it longs to obey His word above everything else. Christianity is a religion of the heart. And next week, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about the human heart. Do join us then. But for now, let's pray in response to this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your Son to die for us. We thank you that he took our sins and our punishment 
on our behalf on the cross and that he, that he rose again as Lord of all. And we thank you that you have given us your spirit who shows us that love in Christ, enables us to trust in him as our Lord and to know you as our Father. And Father, we want to be people who serve and please you. And we know that you teach us to do that in your word. And we know that your Son has shown us the supreme authority of this word. And so we pray, please help us. Please help us not to do anything and not to let anything come about the, the authority of your word in our lives. I help us to, to tremble at your word, knowing that you speak to us through it. I help us to obey your word because we want to obey you. Help us to love your word because we love you. And please change us by your spirit more and more, both individually and as your people together, so that more and more our hearts will reflect the heart of your Son. And we ask this in his name. Amen.